0: We're welcome to go to Children's Church. I'd like to invite the rest of you to turn with me in your Bibles this morning to Luke chapter 12. Luke chapter 12, we're going to be looking at the first 12 verses. And uh, I want to read those for you from the New American Standard text, and you can follow along in whatever version uh, you may happen to have. Luke 12:1. Under these circumstances, after so many thousands of people had gathered together, that they were stepping on one another, began saying to his disciples, first of all, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. There is nothing covered up that will not be revealed, and hidden that will not be known. Accordingly, whatever you have said in the dark will be heard in the light, and whatever you have whispered in the inner courts will be proclaimed upon the housetops. I say to you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body, and after that have no more they can do. But I will warn you about whom to fear. Fear the one who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two cents, and yet not one of them is forgotten before God? Indeed, the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Do not fear, you are more valuable than many sparrows. And I say to you, everyone who confesses me before men, the Son of Man will confess him before the angels of God. But he who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him. But he who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven him. When they bring you before the synagogues and rulers and authorities, do not worry about how or what you are to speak in your defense or what you are to say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. You know, uh, when the Bible was originally written, it was uh, written without breaks, so to speak and uh, did not have chapter and verse divisions. Perhaps you recall some of the New Testament writers, Paul in particular, saying, it is written somewhere, and of course Paul knows where it's written, but he didn't have any other way to refer to it, because he couldn't say, it's written in Exodus chapter 20, verse 13, because those verses and chapters didn't exist. And so, um, several hundred years after the Bible was completed, it occurred to someone to uh, divide it up into chapters and verses so that we could easily find locations within the Scripture. And for the most part, uh, they did a great job, but occasionally they divided something and not always the best place. And uh, here's one of those sections where I think it would have been better uh, if we had not had a chapter division because there are two things that run together here that form the backdrop for what Jesus has to say in these first 12 verses. At the end of chapter 11, after the luncheon, you recall that luncheon where Jesus went to the home of a Pharisee and uh, the conversation did not go so well. Um, The scripture says that after the luncheon, the Pharisees and scribes began to plot and scheme together find a way that they could trap him in his teachings or in some way find him at fault with the Jewish law. Uh, Then we have uh, the next chapter begins by saying, and the crowds had grown to several thousand people, so many that they were starting to step on each other. So two things are going on here. We have scheming, plotting Pharisees that are trying to trip him up and we have thousands of people in the crowd that are looking for, well, who knows what, but their motives weren't always the best either. In fact, you may recall from John chapter 6, after the feeding of the 5,000, that um, they followed Jesus to the other side of the lake, and uh, he was very blunt with them. He said, you're at you're following me around, not, not because you uh, care about the message that I have, but you're following me around because... You want to keep getting fed free food. And uh, you'd follow me forever if I kept feeding you. Well, I'll tell you, I'm only going to feed you my body, my flesh, and my blood. If you drink my, my blood and eat my flesh, you, you will have life. And uh, he really did that to kind of set their teeth on the edge and get in their face. Uh, because we've just uh, celebrated the Lord's table and we know that He didn't literally mean for them to eat His body and drink His blood, but what He meant was, Your life is in Me. You must partake of Me. You must follow Me. You must come along with Me and be My disciple. That's, that's what I'm after. It's not about getting free food. It's about um, partaking of Me and My nature on a daily basis. And so... Um, the crowds were really about as fickle as the Pharisees. Uh, They're neither one, very reliable or trustworthy. So we've got both of these things going on, and Jesus, in the midst of this, and remember, too, they were not particularly a time-conscious group, and so it's not like they showed up at 10 o'clock for a service. Um, The crowd just kept growing and growing, and hours were going by. And Jesus uh, calls His disciples over to the side, and He has a conversation with them. And in that conversation, He begins to unfold the words that appear for us in these first 12 verses and and following. Luke chapter 12 is one of the more difficult chapters in the Scripture. There are a lot of hard sayings here, and by the grace of God, we're going to uh, try to unpack those and learn their meaning as we uh, go through our study here. But as Jesus turns to them, he says, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. Leaven in a Jewish home was a symbol of sin. And you recall at Passover time, the home was to be completely rid of all leaven. Um, It just takes a little bit of leaven, a little bit of yeast to leaven the whole lump. And uh, all the bread will rise, all the dough will rise. And Jesus was saying the Pharisees are like that within the culture, within the society. A little bit of them goes a long way and they infect everything. And in fact, we learned in the last uh, chapter that the uh, lawyers had gotten to the place where they had made the scripture so difficult and so convoluted and so challenging with all the things they'd added to it. That they were actually driving people away from God rather than bringing them toward the Lord. And Jesus is uh, taking these things into a mind. And he says that the Pharisees have so poisoned the multitudes that everyone has been affected. They have been uh, driven away from God in the ways that are important uh, rather than drawn to God. And so with this backdrop, he begins by making these statements. And he says, first of all, in verse 2 and 3, there is nothing covered up that will not be revealed and hidden that will not be known. Accordingly, whatever you have said in the dark will be heard in the light, and what you've whispered in the inner rooms will be proclaimed on the housetops. Now, I won't ask you to show your hands, but I wonder how many of you have been terrified by these words at some point in your life. You've wondered, you know, what's going to happen at one day when I stand at the judgment and everything I've ever said or done is going to be noised abroad for everybody to know. Oh my goodness, that is not going to be fun. Um, I know most believers have had those thoughts at one time or another. I hope to clear some of that up for you this morning. And let you know that this chapter is intended to be encouraging to his disciples, not disheartening. First of all, this, the sayings of verses 2 and 3 are proverbs of the day that they would have recognized. Um, Jesus is not... how shall I say this? It's It's kind of hard without making a mistake in what I'm trying to say. I I struggled with this last hour. Jesus is not saying himself from his own words, whatever is done in secret is going to be shouted from the housetops. He is quoting a proverb that they recognized. We say things like, A stitch in time saves nine. And when we say that, what we mean is catch something early before it becomes a big problem. We understand what that means. Well, we used to understand what that means. I don't know how many of you even know how to sew anymore. But (laughs) the idea is if you have a, a stitch or two starting to unravel in a seam, you better fix it now. Because otherwise you may find its whole seam comes loose at a most inopportune moment. And so you don't want that to happen. A stitch in time saves nine. Um, a bird in the hand is worth two in the bush. We use that statement. And what we mean is um, don't risk what you have to get what you don't have. It's better to, to be satisfied with one you've got than to throw it away trying to grab more. And uh, we understand these proverbs. These are things that we use. They may sound weird to an outsider uh, beyond our culture, but we understand what we mean by them. Well, the people of Jesus' day were familiar with these proverbs. Whatever is spoken in the inner room is going to be shouted from the housetop. Whatever is done in the dark is going to be shown abroad in the light. What the proverb simply means is that no matter how well you think you've covered your trail and, and covered up your tracks, if you uh, uh, live long enough and time goes on, eventually something's going to come out. It just happens to be that way. <clears throat> and it's not necessarily a negative or a positive thing. Um, people who do good deeds... Following the admonition of Scripture, don't let the left hand know what the right hand is doing. When you give alms, when you, when you give charity and do good deeds, uh, the fact of the matter is, if you make a lifestyle practice of blessing others secretly, uh, some of that's going to leak. People are going to find out what you do that you uh, are trying to keep under wraps, but it's going to come out. And by the same token... If you're plotting evil and scheming wickedness, um, you may think you've got everything smoothed over, but it eventually comes out. Just watch Politics in America or Politics in Illinois. Take your pick. Politics in Chicago. Uh, I'll stop there. But just uh, imagine, you know, that things that people think they've, they've done under wraps uh, it has a tendency to come to the surface. Jesus is saying this is the way it is with the Pharisees. They're all scheming and plotting. It's going to come to light. It's going to be found out one day. One of the things that Jesus does not mean, and I think this is so very important for us as followers of Jesus Christ to understand, He is not saying to His followers, to those who put their faith and trust in Him, one day you will stand at the judgment and every thought you've ever had, every deed you've ever done, every word you've ever spoken, every uh, thing that you've ever thought or planned or schemed or had an idea is going to be shouted to everybody present. That's not what he means. In fact, let me give you some scripture. Aren't you glad? <laughs> I see some great agreement down here in the front. Um. Let me give you some scripture that supports what I'm saying. Let me start by asking a question. Be careful. Don't jump in on the answer too soon. Will you as a follower and believer in Jesus Christ ever be judged for your sin? Somebody jumped in, but it was the right answer. No. Why not? Because Jesus has been judged for my sin. He has paid the price. My sin is covered by His blood. We, again, have celebrated the Lord's table this morning, reminding us that His blood cleanses me from all sin, it washes it away. God says to the Israelites, Come, let us reason together, says the Lord, Though your sins be as scarlet, they will be whiter than snow. You will be whiter than snow. And throughout the Scripture, there is the affirmation that when we come to God in repentance and forgiveness, the Scripture says, He cast our sin into the depths of the sea. The Scripture says that He separates our sin from us as far as the east is from the west. You've heard me say this before, but if He had said north to south, you can measure that distance. You just go to the north pole and drop your pin, and you draw a line to the south pole, and you have a distance that is finite. But if you decide that you're going to go east to west, you can drop a pin here in McHenry, Illinois, and you can start going east. And 15 years from now, you'll still be going east. If you turn around and start going west, 30 years from then, you'll still be going west. East and west never meet. They go forever. They're infinite. There's no definite distance. God has removed our sins as far as the east is from the west. But perhaps one of the most remarkable passages is found in Jeremiah 31 and quoted twice in Hebrews, and I've given you these references. God says, I will remove your iniquity and your sin I will remember no more. Remembering here is an active verb. It takes a conscious effort to call it to mind. What God is saying is that when you come to me and through the forgiveness and the blood of Jesus Christ that cleanses you from all sin, I cast it in the depths of the sea, I separate it as far as the east is from the west, I wash you whiter than snow, and I will never again call it to mind. It will never come up. I will not recollect anything evil against you forever it is gone aren't you glad for that aren't you thankful so what then is the judgment seat of Christ all about well the judgment seat of Christ is an assessment based on what our lives have accomplished of eternal value do you remember the criteria We will stand before the bema seat, the judgment seat of Christ, and our and our works will be tested. Those which are wood, hay, and stubble will be consumed in the fire because they have no lasting value. But those things that have been accomplished through us by the power of God will come out as pure gold and silver and precious stones. They will last forever. They will go with us into eternity. The judgment seat of Christ for believers is the proving of that which God has accomplished in our lives. that has eternal significance and value. All the other things will be done away. And they're not sins per se. What they are are things that we have kind of frittered away our time with. What will last is that which, as the old hymn goes, only what's done for Christ will last. And so, if you want more gold and silver and precious stone, live in such a way that your life will have eternal significance. But if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, and you have put your faith and trust in Him, and you have received the atonement and the cleansing blood that has washed you and made you whiter than snow, my friend, you will never hear of your sin again. It is gone. And it will not be remembered against you. This passage is not talking to believers. It's a proverb, not eschatological, but in the present moment, talking about those who think they're covering up what they're doing. And he says, it's going to come out. These plotting Pharisees will be uncovered. And then he goes on to say in verse 4, I say to you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body, and after that have no more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear the one who after he has killed the body, or who has killed has the authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. And then he says, are not five sparrows sold for two cents, yet not one of them is forgotten before God. Indeed, the very hairs of your head are numbered. Do not fear, for you are of more value than many sparrows. You know, Jesus is pointing out the obvious. It may not have occurred to us. We don't like to think of our own mortality. But the truth is, no one's getting off this planet alive. Everyone's going to die sometime, in some way. Whether you die as a martyr at the hands of an angry mob who accuse you of being a follower of Jesus Christ or whether you go quietly in your sleep at some ripe old age, the fact remains that every one of us at some time and in some way will die. And so Jesus says, don't worry about those who, the worst they can do is kill the body. That's not your problem. Everybody's going to die. What you need to be concerned about is what happens after you die and you open your eyes in eternity. That's where you need to be concerned. And the one that you really need to be concerned about is the one who has the authority to cast your now eternal soul into hell. That's the one to be concerned about. And so Jesus, in essence, is saying, be sure you're on the right side. Be sure you're on the right team when you die. Don't worry about dying, just make sure that you're prepared. That you're ready, because if you die unprepared, that one that you will face has the authority to cast your soul into hell eternally. Don't be in that position. He he is now warning them about the future because those who follow him will suffer persecution and you don't have to go very far from this moment into the book of Acts to realize that some of the very disciples to whom he was speaking not many years after this in fact perhaps just one or two ended up giving their lives already for the testimony of Jesus Christ and so he says make sure you're on the right side But understand this, no matter what you go through in life, no matter what you experience, no matter what problems come against you, here's the reality. God knows when the sparrows fall. And you're worth a whole lot more than a sparrow. In fact, a lot more than many sparrows. He knows the very hairs of your head. Jesus is thinking of David's Psalm 139. He knows when you sit down and when you stand up. He knows what you think before you even think it. He is intimately acquainted with all of your ways. He knows your life in detail. He knows when you go out and when you come back. He knows everything there is to know about you, and He cares about you with an infinite care. Do not be afraid. Isn't that a beautiful juxtaposition? You need to be sure you're on the right team. Be afraid of the one who can judge you eternally. But don't be afraid of one who knows you so well. That cares about you so much. That knows the details of your life. That in the midst of your greatest trials will be present. And he will not overlook a single detail. But He will always be conscious of your needs. And so He says, I say to you that everyone who confesses Me before men, the Son of Man, will confess Him before the angels of God. Aren't you glad for that? you you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, and you've confessed and professed Him before uh, the world, He will confess you before the angels of heaven. Those who deny Him, He will deny But those who profess him, he will profess before the angels in heaven. Are you a professor, a follower, a confessor of Jesus Christ? Are you lifting his banner up? Are you naming his name? He will not forget you in the time of trouble. And then he says these words that have also troubled a very lot of people. And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him. But he who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven him. We call this the unpardonable sin. The worst sin of all. You know, the encouraging word here, and there is an encouragement. The encouraging word is... If you take this one sin off the table, there is no sin that you commit that cannot be forgiven. There is no sin that anyone can do that is beyond the grace of God to cleanse and forgive. I don't care what it is, how many times it's done, what the history is. The Apostle Paul, before he became Paul, was Saul of Tarsus. At a time when the church was young and fragile, he set out to destroy the church of God, to see to it that every believer was put to death for their faith. He set out to strike fear and terror in the hearts of everyone that would name the name of Jesus. It was his intended purpose to eradicate the church of Jesus Christ from the face of the earth. And he said, I am chief of sinners for that very reason and yet he said grace was available to me and on the road to Damascus when he met the living Lord as he received the vision and bowed the knee before Jesus Christ and confessed him as Lord Paul the chief of sinners found forgiveness in Jesus Christ There's nothing you can do that cannot be forgiven. There's no sin that is beyond the grace of God except this one. So what is this sin, the unpardonable sin? Well, remember the context. And in everywhere that this statement occurs, it occurs within a similar context. Jesus is reminding them of this unpardonable sin when some in the crowd have said, you're doing what you're doing by the power of Satan. That's how you're able to cast out demons. Remember how angry those fellows got at lunch? Those Pharisees and lawyers? Jesus was actually extending grace to them. He was loving them. He went to lunch with them and tried to get their attention. He basically was saying to them, you get all occupied with these little nitpicky things and you're driving people away from God. That's not what this is all about. He said, you're in trouble. Woe to you. And in essence, he was saying, wake up. Wake up. Don't send your life away. Don't don't be so stubborn and obstinate. Don't be on this bent that you're on. Come to your senses. They didn't come to their senses. They They started plotting and scheming how to make it worse. Here's the thing about the Pharisees. They knew who Jesus was. You may think they didn't, but they did. They recognized the truth as he spoke it. The Holy Spirit was testifying to his works. They knew that the miracles he was working were by the power of God. And it made them mad. They, they got angry. Because clearly he was not falling into line with their agenda. They wanted someone, a Messiah, that was going to come on the scene and overthrow the Romans. Drive the Romans out of Palestine. Give the land back to them. So guess who could run it? The Pharisees and Sadducees. They wanted to be in charge. They wanted to be on top of the game. They wanted to be controlling all of the land and all of the people. That was their objective. Jesus was not fitting into their mold. They knew that He spoke the truth. They came under conviction every time He opened His mouth. They hated Him for it. By the way, Jesus said, if they hate hated Me, they're going to hate you. You tell people the truth. If they don't repent, they're going to hate you. Only one of two ways it can go. You tell someone the truth, their eyes are open, they see the light, they come to repentance, or they... Their eyes are open, they don't like what they see, and they want to get rid of you. You're reminding them of what they don't want to remember. And so, the Pharisees knew the truth. They knew he was working by the power of God. These are people that when the Roman soldiers, as we mentioned a week or two ago, came back to report the resurrection... Which is in essence what they were doing. Angelic beings appeared. Stone was moved. He wasn't there. Let's pay you off to keep your mouth shut. We don't want anybody to know this. They knew. They knew. And they said still. Ah, that's the power of Satan. We're going to tell everybody that's the power of Satan. Because... We're not bending the knee to Jesus. We're not confessing Him. We want to be in charge. We want to run the show. And so, we're going to make sure that people think that He's operating by the power of the devil. And they knew better. Jesus said, Those who blaspheme the testimony of the Holy Spirit and attribute His work to Satan himself, They have moved themselves beyond the grace of God. I don't even know that this means that the first time you utter something like that, and by the way, this is not an ignorant sin, this is a deliberate and intentional sin, but I don't even know if the first time it sticks, but if you persist, the Scripture says the one who stiffens his neck being often reproved will be suddenly cut off without remedy. It is possible in defiant rebellion to sin away the opportunity of grace. And these people go to their grave with stubborn, belligerent self-will knowing all the while that God is right. And they want nothing to do with Him. I've actually had people tell me that. It's pretty scary. As they've approached their death, I've actually had people say, I don't want to believe. I don't want to go where God is. I have no desire. I want to be down there with the devil and all my buddies. What a foolish statement. They have no idea what they're saying, and yet they do know what they're saying. If I have to be a Christian to go to heaven... I'd rather go to hell. That's scary. And there are people who turn away from God and in their stubbornness, their heart becomes hard until the day comes when they can no longer turn back. Let me let you in on something. If you were concerned that you've committed the unpardonable sin, you haven't. People who commit the unpardonable sin don't give a rip. If if you feel that you've done something that you're so ashamed of, and and you've asked God to forgive you over, and you just feel like you, you can never get forgiveness, you have not committed the unpardonable sin. You may be struggling with belief. You may be having a hard time forgiving yourself, but you haven't committed the unpardonable sin. There is no sin that you can commit that God cannot forgive other than this defiant, fist-waving rebellion in the face of God with the full knowledge of what you're doing. And you insist that you're going to do it your way or die trying. And God be damned. Now, if that's the way you feel, that's the unpardonable sin. But you know what? I don't think there's anybody in this room that's in that camp. If there's in a the heart of you a, a, an inkling of remorse and a desire to be cleansed and forgiven and restored... There's a God in heaven who can forgive you and who will receive you with open arms because that's the nature of His grace. Three paragraphs. They filled many hearts with fear. Quite frankly, they ought to fill ours with hope and with comfort and with encouragement. God is on our team. If we're on his team, we don't have to be afraid of him. He knows us intimately, and he cares for us, and he has removed our sin from us and remembers it no more. Thank you, Father, for your great love in Jesus Christ, for the remembrance that we have had this morning as we have taken The bread, the broken body in our hands, and the cup, the blood of Jesus in our hands, reminding us of his sacrifice, that we have been cleansed and washed, and are capable of being restored by your love. We praise your name, Lord Jesus. Amen.